The short game is listener-supported on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show and join us on our Discord, head to theshortgame.net or patreon.com slash theshortgame. Welcome back to The Short Game. This is a show about short video games, games that respect your time. I'm Reagan Kelly, and I am joined by my cool co-host, Nate Heininger. How are you doing, Nate? I'm doing well. Uh, thumbs a little sore. Oh, yeah. You know, almost threw my Switch a few times, but to me, that's the hallmark of a good platformer. So I'm uh, I'm excited to talk about this game. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing as well as can be expected under the circumstances, which is all anyone can say right now. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, I, I had a lot of fun this week playing The Messenger uh, on the Nintendo Switch. The Messenger isn't exactly a new game. It came out in summer of 2018, and it's sort of been on my list to cover for the show for a while. Uh, but it, for one reason or another, kept not filtering onto our list. One aspect of that is that it is on the long side for us. And actually, I need to probably preface this whole conversation by saying that when I started playing The Messenger, I thought it was a, a great deal shorter than it actually was. Even looking at mm-hmm. how long to beat, uh, it is listed as about an 11 to 11 and a half hour game, unless you're being a completionist, which I'm usually not. So I thought, well, that's just a little bit of a stretch, but hey, I've got some time. We're all quarantined. Um, this is a, you know, I, I thought this would still fit pretty well into our short game zone. And in looking at the in-game clock, I am actually at about 14 and a half hours, which is, yeah, yeah, long, on the long side for the short game. It is. And I think we're actually going to talk a little bit about that later on, about how maybe this game actually would have been better if it fits within our uh, expectations or what we look for in shorter games. Uh, that said, when we talk about games that respect your time, um, you know, it, it's constantly throwing new things. Um, you know, it, it has easy save points, constant save points. So while it is longer, uh, you can definitely tackle it at your own pace and really have no uh, no no downsides. Yeah, this is the type of game that you could probably play for three or four hours, put it down for a month, and outside of some of the muscle memory of uh, you know of a more challenging platformer, you can pick it right back up and spend yeah. another hour, and you will have left nothing behind. Well, let's set up the game. So uh, the Messenger is a action platformer. It's by a developer called Sabotage Studios and published by Devolver Digital, and it came out on the Nintendo Switch and PC, and since that time, it's also come out on all of the other things. So it's on Xbox and PlayStation, um, and uh, you know, if you have a device that you can play action platformers on, it's probably going to be available on that. Um, it's, uh, it's very 8-bit styled on the face of it, and we're going to be having a early spoiler break to talk about some of the surprises and twists that it throws at you. One of the things that this game is sort of fav- famous for is an, a, an important mid-game twist that was still surprising to me, even though I kind of knew it was coming, sort of. So we're not gonna we're gonna try to reserve some of that later game post twist stuff for after a light spoiler break, but it's gonna be really hard to talk about this game as a whole without spoiling some of that stuff. So we're gonna have a fairly early spoiler break in the show, and uh, mostly what we're talking about are mechanics spoilers, not story spoilers. Um, so if that's the sort of thing that you care about, uh, you can stop at the spoiler break, but otherwise uh, continue listening. We're gonna talk about 
the many ways that this game kind of expresses its action platformer heritage in different ways. Uh, it's really, really an interesting take. Um, and yeah, I would say if this game is interesting to you, uh, even from this early description, uh, I would just pause now and go and play it and then come back to listen because <laughs> it's hard to, this is going to be a, a hard line to walk because it really is a mechanic thing. And that's unlike most of our spoiler breaks where it's like really easy to just, hey, don't don't say the narrative twist, you know? And that's not really the case here. Uh, it's all about just what you're doing in the game. The, the big thing that that I could say that isn't a spoiler is that if you enjoy the action platforming mechanics of this game, the uh, very Ninja Gaiden uh, 8-bit style uh, run and jump and sword swipe basics of this game, those persist throughout. Uh, so this game has some different ways of letting you kind of play with those controls, basically different ways of structuring things, which we'll talk about a little later. Um, if you enjoy the physical action of this game, then that continues to be good and fun and challenging from beginning to end. And uh, the, 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 the things that suddenly shift beneath your feet in the middle of this game are not things that are going to affect your enjoyment if you're still enjoying that action platforming. Yeah. So let's set up the story just a little bit. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then, and then uh, we'll jump into the core mechanics of the game. Uh, so in the, this, the game starts with a really epic opening, uh, classic old video game opening. Uh, definitely going to be paraphrasing here, but essentially there's some sort of demon king that uh, come, is going to come back at some point. Uh, and destroy the world, but there's a prophecy that at the same time the hero of the West is going to come back and deliver a scroll to a top of a mountain, and that will defeat the Demon King or something like that. Uh, and you play as the messenger, the person who's going to be delivering that scroll. It's really just a setup for your character to have to move across a world. From yeah. zone to zone to zone, from uh, like a marsh to an underground catacombs to uh, you know an icy mountain peak and things like that, uh, to deliver the scroll and fight the various demons and creatures that just exist in these types of environments. Right, and it's very much pulling its structure from that uh, eight-bit. NES era of action platformers. So you're moving left to right across, you know, it gives you a map that's very reminiscent of the old Castlevania, or uh, I think, I mean, lots of other 8-bit games did the same sort of vibe, but like, if you remember back in the Castlevania games, especially Castlevania 3, um, you had these stages, but occasionally you'd see this sort of world map that kind of tied those stages together. I'm also thinking of things like Ghosts and Goblins and you know, this sort of world map that gives you a sense of place. Uh, and so in The Messenger, what that is, is this massive island that has different zones within it, um, culminating in a mountain peak, like Nate said, where we're uh, you know, moving left to right, trying to fight demons and other monsters along the way and trying to deliver that scroll. Very NES-style structure. Um, it, and even kind of NES style in the way that it, it sets things up. So it's got the very sort of um, uh, NES style cutscenes where it's just text and some maybe scrolling 8-bit looking images to kind of set and up a... 
the it's world. It's very epic. Yeah, very, it's, very it's, epic. it's epic for its time, right? Yeah. You know, it's very simple, uh, but the story is presented in this really epic, like, you know, prophecies and demon lords and all, all of that. Mm-hmm. So, okay, we... The setup is very, very NES, but the things that feel very, uh, feel more advanced than that. Uh, first of all, the gameplay style is really, really, really polished and uh, feels like a, a modern take on the uh, the like hardcore NES action platformers, aka the Ninja Gaiden type things. Um, the big things that I think are, are really important to the way this game plays. One is that you have a uh, your sword swipe. Most of your you know, most of your combat is done via like a, a very short range sword swipe kind of action, where you slash out with your ninja sword, and it's got a pretty pretty short reach. Um, you don't slow down at all when slashing. So almost every enemy in the game takes only one hit to kill. Um, but also, almost every enemy in the game does pretty pretty significant damage to you. So it's about being careful about you know uh, positioning and everything. Um, and uh, you can generally, if you're you can run full speed at an enemy and slash them and one run right through without letting up the the forward button most of the time, um, which gives it a really uh, fast pace and a lot of like uh, uh, momentum when you're kind of moving through levels. You're doing a lot of jump and slash and jump and slash and jump and slash without needing to slow down, which feels great when you make it work. Um, and uh, a few other things about it. The jumping is, uh, so it's got a pretty traditional basic, you know, jump arc. But then in addition to that, it has a really, uh, it, from the very beginning, you have a mechanic called cloud stepping. Uh, the cloud step mechanic is basically that if you uh, jump and then midair you hit something with your sword, then you can jump again. Um, and there's no limit on that. So if you can continue to attack midair, then you can continue to jump midair, but you only get one jump for every slash. So basically, if you can chain together killing a bunch of enemies before you hit the ground, you can continue in these massive jump chains. Um, but that's very, very hard to do because, of course, if you miss one of those slashes, you're going to take damage and it has knockback and you'll fall down probably into a pit or something. So it's high, yep. ch- high risk, high reward, challenging um, action platformer mechanics that really just make it feel like you have a lot of forward momentum, constantly moving. And um, it, I don't know, for me, I thought it felt really, really good while also being really hard. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, a, a couple other points I, I think that st- st- stood out to me. So I did not play a lot of those games, uh, Ninja Gaiden and whatnot. Uh, me neither. Actually. That actually... I didn't really discover Ninja Gaiden games until emulation, like pretty late. I didn't have an NES, but um, yeah, they they felt for me a lot like some of the games inspired by those games from the Genesis, which is sort of where I hopped on yeah. that kind of gameplay. Funny, I had a the thing that I kept thinking about is my cousin had a Nintendo and he had the Karate Kid game, <laughs> and it really I kept having like flashbacks of playing that game uh, for this. So, uh, so if there's anyone out there that has played that game, I don't really remember if it. I don't really know if it's anything actually like this, but that was like something that kept coming to mind for me during this game. This game does a great job of playing like you remember NES games feeling, sort of, if that makes sense. It's mm-hmm. it's it's like more advanced and more modern in a lot of ways, but those ways are subtle. It feels like you remember those games being. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, another, you know, a couple 
thoughts about the mechanics too is that the jump always felt heavy if that makes sense um i think you know i think with a lot of platformers you're we're used to kind of a a floating a floaty element of it um and and not in this game you you fall you know pretty quickly i think compared to uh, a lot of platformers and so that makes those combos that you're talking about the slash jump slash jump uh a little more tricky than I think it would be if it was with a uh, like a Celeste or like a Mario weight. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so to your point, that that whole thing adds this feeling of like speed and like density. You fall fast, you 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 swipe fast. There's a lot of things that are happening on the screen that are fast. That said, one thing that is not really actually ever that fast, except for maybe a boss or two, are the enemies. Mm-hmm. The enemy, the enemy placement in this game is interesting. They're more there to like impede your forward progress than to necessarily cause any individual challenge. They're they're placed in a way that's going to make a jump difficult. They're shooting fireballs, uh, a thing that like for this entire game was constantly catching me off guard. Is that projectiles pass like in front of? the terrain and pass through everything so you might have a a guy who shoots fireballs entirely on the right side of the screen and for you you have to go through a whole series of like jumps and ladders and ups and downs but the fireball he shoots is just going to go right across everything uh and it can hit you or if you there are parts with classic sort of cave thing where like a stalactite the one on the ceiling falls (laughs) and uh you know, you might think you're safe because you're under something, but you're not. It just passes right through it, and the only thing it can hit is you. So there's a lot of things that come to you in that way. But but really, I think the way that I died, like, 95% of the time was falling in a freaking pit. There are so <laughs> many open pits in this game that I it's like that was almost always how I died. The enemies are never that challenging. Like, they do do a lot of damage, Uh but you've got six health points and there's frequent places where you can get health. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I would die from those from time to time. Don't get me wrong. Usually trying to go too fast and like not swiping at exactly the right time and running directly into the enemy instead of what I, you know, what I was planning on doing, which was swiping and moving through it. But most of the time it's like, I'm trying to make a jump. There's a guy on the platform on the other side. I mess up the jump. He hits you and you fall back down into the pit or something like that. There's just constantly little things slowing you down and impeding you, but not any individual challenge. But they all add up slowly but surely to drain you and and you die that way instead of like, I don't know, like a, a really difficult enemy. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It is a lot of things like, um, you know, the enemies being placed in just a spot where you have to be uh, very precise about timing in order to get in and kill them without falling in a pit, that sort of thing. Lots of, of that kind of thing. It's a slashing game, but it's not like a hack and slash, you know? Like, you're never... You're almost never just like mowing through enemies, right? And you always almost... feel you always feel threatened or challenged. Like it, it's very, um, like even in the very last stages, just moving around through spaces. Sometimes even spaces I'd been through before was always difficult and challenging. Like it's mm-hmm. it, there's there's never a feel of like 
I've fully mastered this space and can move through it at will. Like you can sometimes get in like um, you know other types of, of platformers where you know eventually maybe in a zone that was difficult for you either because of mastery or upgrades is suddenly trivial and just just you know a place to pass on through. Even going back to early stages, uh, it was always challenging. Uh, yeah, you really have to focus. There's enough there and there's enough instant kill stuff. If you're not falling in a pit, you're getting crushed by something. Yeah. You know, there's enough that like will you're not paying attention. You're trying to just move fast. You've been in this area. Maybe you die uh, right near the end of a checkpoint. So you have to do a whole area again. Uh, and you can't just breeze through it because, you, you know, you got good. Like you really have to focus. It's it is kind of a game that you want to play fast, but really you're going to be most successful if you are methodical. Also, well, speaking about the dying, uh, another place that this game tried to be innovative and I think succeeded somewhat. It's maybe not quite as innovative as some other similar games like I thought often of Shovel Knight, but um, they were trying to trying to be creative with the way they handled lives and continues. Um, so rather than, uh, you know, when you die, you have a certain number of lives or anything like that, um, you know, they obviously that feels pretty antique today, but just having truly unlimited lives and checkpoints uh, sometimes feels a little bit like, particularly if you're applying that to a game that is so heavily inspired by retro games, um, it can feel a little bit um, uh, like not challenging enough or like consequence free. So the way that this game sort of punishes you for death is with a uh, pretty, so first of all, there's there's uh, frequent checkpoints, uh, really frequent, not necessarily every screen. Every screen has some sort of challenge on it. And, and there are definitely times in this game where I was like, man, I wish there was a checkpoint a little closer to this place where I keep dying. But for the most part, you're, you know, if you're playing through at a typical speed, you're probably gonna be encountering a checkpoint every, you know, three to five screens. Um, and uh, when, you, when you die, um, there is this little demon named Quarble, and Quarble will resurrect you at the last checkpoint. Um, but he doesn't do it entirely for free. He then follows you around, and as you collect, there's a sort of currency in this game, and I'm not actually sure what they are. They're little like flame. time time I think time shards. Time That's shards. Right. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, little little crystals. And uh, uh, if you have died recently, then Quarble will hang out near you, you know, float around around you for a certain amount of time. I'm not actually sure how long. I think it's maybe a couple of minutes or something. And any time shards that you collect during that time go to Quarble, not to your stash. And those time shards are important because those are how you upgrade. So if you are uh, if you are dying constantly, just you know, throwing yourself into pits again and again and again, you're not accumulating any time shards. Um, Corbel doesn't take ch time shards from your stash. So if you have saved up, say, you know, 600 time shards, and then you get to a point where you're dying a lot, it's not gonna take your existing time shards away. It's just gonna really stop you from accumulating new time shards until you've stayed alive for a while. Um, which I yeah. thought was a really interesting, fair way to do it. And something I saw the developers mention about this mechanic that I thought was clever was that they wanted a mechanic that would um, you know, be really simple for people who just want to, you know, be able to die a bunch without feeling like a lot of a lot of pressure. Um, and they also wanted uh, something that would be a kind of they described it as a dunce cap mechanic for people like streamers or speedrunners, um, because they wanted, you know, if you're if you're playing this game on a stream and you've got Quarble hanging around, floating around you, then that means you've been screwing up. 
Uh, whereas if Corbel's nowhere to be seen, then you have been staying alive. And I think that's, that's a funny. really, really smart solution. Um, and also, like, Corbel is a, you know, he's a character. Uh, every time you die, you get a little quote from Corbel. Uh, and I think I've seen every single damn one of oh, those. Oh my god! Yeah, it, it gets uh, <laughs> it gets to the point where you're not even looking at him anymore because right. you, you die a lot in this game. Uh, my final my final total was more than 550 deaths. Nice. Um, <laughs> I don't know what my total is right now, but I I Corbel will tell you every once in a while. And the last one I saw was somewhere in the 300s, and I think you are several hours ahead of me i have died a lot in this game i will you know i've got to uh eat my hat a little bit on this one you know i you've definitely heard me talk on this podcast about platformers being like my thing i'm really bad at a lot of types of video games but there's a couple genres that i consider myself really good at uh i never felt good at this game i felt like (laughs) it's not designed to make you feel good i know but i but i you know like i i feel like i just like died my way through this game Mm -hmm. um and so you get to the point where you're not even reading the quarrel thing because you've seen it every you know you've seen all of them uh every once in a while it's his brother quibble uh (laughs) there there was one really they're kind of funny though so i definitely recommend reading them uh you know one of the ones that really made me laugh is i fell in a pit uh in a really dumb way and it was the first time i'd seen this uh, where Corbel says something to the effect of like, oh great, now I get to see what your face looks like when you fall in a pit. <laughs> and I know for a fact that I had I had like gone like, Ugh! you know, and made like a stupid face because I fell in a pit in a stupid way. And then it says that. It was it was very funny. Um, I, I also think that the the Corbel mechanic, it was a, a problem solver in a different way. And I think it's pretty clever because I do think it's a it's an amount of time shards that you collect before it goes away uh, because there's a power up that reduces the amount that he needs to collect mm. before he goes away. Yeah, that um, makes so sense. I don't think it's I don't think it's time. I think it's a number. But so the problem that I think it, it solves, though, is that because everything resets uh, every time you die, all the enemies, and there are little like lanterns everywhere that it, that are attackable, and they give you time shards, they give you health, they give you the shurikens that you can throw. Uh, those respawn, and so theoretically, you could farm in this game if you wanted to, right? If you if you die, if a checkpoint had a bunch of those uh, respawnable things that give you money, uh, you could. Mm-hmm die, hit those, collect like the 10 or 15 time shards, jump in a pit, die, collect the 10 or 15 time shards, you know, and you could you could rinse and repeat really, really quickly if you wanted to. And there are definitely players who would do that, right? You would be able to uh, get all the upgrades in a really quick way. And you still could technically do that, but I think Corbel slows that down enough mm-hmm. where it would be excruciating to do it (laughs) so i I do think it solves that problem which is it it kind of mitigates the amount of time shards you earn by dying you get no reward from your death because otherwise if you got all of those time shards for the first like two or three screens that you have to do over and over and over to get to the more difficult part Mm -hmm. there would never be any currency problem in this game but I found that the currency 
uh, actually scaled really, really well. Yeah, yeah. I am. I am. I assume that they actually scale. I could be wrong, but it felt like they're actually modifying, like the amount of money Corval takes to keep your currency at like the appropriate level. They like might have been, they're... yeah. I, I'm not sure, but I can definitely say that like I bought the final upgrade before the final level, and you know, you know yeah. that that's that's like that means that the economy of the game was like lining up with its length and design. Yeah, and and I think it's because of Corbel. Um, yeah. I mean, because if if not, like you die hundreds of times, and you're replaying the same screens hundreds of times, each of which would be giving you time shards. But because of Corbel, you're not getting them until generally you kind of get back to where you were, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I I thought it was to, when I was playing. I, to me, that's what I expected. The, or to me, like that's what I assumed the creation of Horrible was. You know, it's like the points that you gave that the developers actually said are are, are awesome. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, thing it's, it's a hilarious. good solution that solves multiple problems. So yeah, I, I will say, like, yeah. I you know, I, I didn't think it was as interesting and innovative as something like the Dark Souls inspired death mechanics in something like Shovel Knight. Um, but at least yeah. they were trying something that I hadn't. I don't think I've seen in exactly this way before. This sort of like. It's not exactly like a like a, a tax to respawn. If it had been just a straight like here, you have to pay uh, you know a hundred uh, shards every time you respawn. I would have been out of shards very quickly in some areas. Um, yeah. But because it's more sort of like a tax, it's like an income tax basically. Um, it's like well, well, yeah, it's the same way. It's it's taking it from what you're about to earn instead of what you already earn, right. which in a way kind of feels better. Because you never see it that does. Down, yeah, exactly. Right? Shovel Knight would kind of go drive me crazy sometimes when you get, or like Sonic, right? You mm -hmm. get hit and you're like, my riches! <laughs> you know, it just goes. <laughs> they go flying, yes. <laughs> oh, God, that's that's depressing in Sonic the Hedgehog. But at least in Sonic the Hedgehog, there's nothing you're saving up for. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've talked through, I think, most of the important mechanic stuff. Um, the, the last thing I'll say before we start to talk about something that is definitely a mechanics spoiler um, for the sort of second half-ish of the game is that the game initially feels like this, say, I think it's like eight-stage, I might be getting that wrong, number wrong, NES platformer. It has bosses and mini-bosses and a structure that feels just like that. Uh, but towards the end of the game, uh, that takes... There's a uh, you get to basically what would be the final boss of the let's say the original NES game here, and then there is a mechanical or structural twist that changes the structure of the game, um, and this is where we get into spoiler territory. So again, I don't know if we need like a full-on spoiler break. I'm not going to edit the sound effect in here. The game came out in 2018. Um, and this is stuff that has been, at the very least, strongly alluded to in marketing for the game and also in reviews for the game. You know, you can't really look up a review for this game that doesn't address what we're about to be talking about by at least the fourth or fifth paragraph. So, all that said, we're about to start talking about the second quote-unquote half of the game, which for me, at least in my playthrough, is more like the last two-thirds of the game wherein things change up a little bit. So if you were uh, wanting to surprise yourself with that stuff, um, now's, now's the time for, uh, for maybe pausing the show. Um, but, Nate, let's talk about that last, the, the, big, the big twist. 
Yeah, so like you said, the game is incredibly linear. You have an idea of what's coming, uh, the boss structure is the same every single time. You know when you're about to have a boss, you know what's coming up. Well, you finally beat the, the last boss, and you go through a wacky series of cutscenes again, and suddenly, dun dun dun, this game becomes a Metroidvania. Does it though? Because here's the thing. Like, I, okay, I, I know this is because I know this is going to be pedantic, and I apologize in advance for being pedantic. But I, I, I think a lot of people have said this game becomes a Metroidvania, and so, and I had heard that before. And then when I actually got into it, it's not exactly what I think of when I think of a Metroidvania. It shifts from being very linear to being very exploration focused, but it's not so much focused on the Metroidvania style design uh, map of finding new upgrades that unlock new areas. You know, that for me, I think like the key to a Metroidvania is that you are your upgrades, you're not just finding keys, um, your upgrades are both useful in-game items or, or actions or, or weapons and also unlock new element new parts of the exploration for you and for me i don't really think this structure this will like fit that structure but it did definitely feel like it a big shift from like linear 8-bit style game to yeah 16-bit like style exploration oriented platformer with a with a world map that you can jump around with some fast travel and explore and find secrets yeah i mean i yeah i think this is definitely probably pretty pedantic but i mean you could also argue that the first half of the game you are unlocking the power to travel through time and then the second half of the game you're using that power to travel through time and some of the upgrades that you've gotten uh you know earlier on to go and access areas that you were unable to access before. So if you look at like the whole game as a Metroidvania, you just can't access those points until you unlock the skills. Yeah, I don't it, think it's like, I don't think it's crazy to call it a Metroidvania. I yeah. just think for what I think was very uh, interesting about it is that like, it, it takes this shift in structure, but it keeps its levels more or less the same. It just gives you, um, so you know, Nate mentioned that, that you, you get the ability to travel through time. Well, uh, aesthetically, what it does with that is very cool. Basically, it's, uh, there are points in this game where you can switch from the 8-bit style to a more advanced 16-bit style. So the music shifts from NES-style 8-bit uh, uh, chiptune music to more like Genesis-style 16-bit, uh, you know, FM synthesis type of music, which is very cool. Then you also get a different graphical style, just from an 8-bit graphical style to something that looks a little more, to me, like SNES style, 16-bit style. But uh, in that shift, mostly the levels look the same in their 8- and 16-bit versions, but there will be sometimes subtle differences, sometimes very big differences. And that allows you to go places that you wouldn't have been able to go. So maybe if you have a, you know, a level where there's like a, a, you know, a, a dead end, uh, and then you travel through time, maybe in the future, that dead end has been, I guess, carved out, and now you can pass through that spot. Uh, lots of things like that, and it, it plays with that sort of like uh, multiple versions of the same space thing throughout the whole rest of the game, and it does it really well and, and interestingly. Yeah, um, it really opens the game up. It was a pretty big surprise that the game was not done when it really feels like the game is going to be done. Uh, that being said, there were several things to me 
early on that indicated that there was probably more uh, coming because uh, one, there's the power seals that you collect mm-hmm. throughout the game. Uh, it's very much like the Celeste strawberries. Mm-hmm. They are they are hidden, uh, but to varying degrees. Sometimes hidden in like an incredibly obvious way. Uh, sometimes it's actually a pretty challenging a jump or a uh, really well hidden you know entrance to these things and you enter into them they're often one screen challenges that are generally more challenging platformer challenges uh, and at the end you receive a power seal and there is a counter in this shop that is telling you uh, you once you collect a certain amount of power seals you gain you'll get a, ne- a new ability and that counter is really, really high. Yes, yeah, 45. And the whole, 45. Yeah, and, and I was really trying to find them and get them in this game. And just like doing the math and looking at how many like zones there still were, I was like, there's, I don't, unless there's like a power seal run coming up, I don't think I've had the opportunity to earn the full amount of power seals that there actually are. Uh, so kind of thought there must be something after these bosses uh, that's going to give me a chance to earn more power seals. And then there are some just visual cues that there are areas that you can't get to. Uh, There's what looks like platforms or or things that you can jump up to and there's like columns in the way and I kept what I kept expecting was that I was going to get a power to like punch stuff really really hard Mm -hmm. and break down walls. Because uh, I kept seeing things where I was like, oh, I want to go there. I, I think I should be able to go there, but I can't go there yet. So I was expecting some sort of Metroidvania thing where I was going to go back and like punch through these columns or punch through these walls. And instead, it ended up being this wacky time warp thing uh, that was actually more interesting to me than just another uh, you know, punch that would break things like what I thought would happen. Uh, and really, the 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 time warp though, where you're getting the graphics change and the sound change, to me is ultimately like the most interesting thing about this game. It, it I think yeah. it's handled really well. It's cool. I've not really seen something like that, and it, it changes in a flash. You sometimes you are jumping through these. There's a lot of different things that'll make you switch times, but a lot of times it's just like a rift, like a single line. And you are flashing between these things within a moment of each other. And the whole world, the music, everything changes within a flash. And it's it's really well executed. Yeah. Uh, it's um, the, the time skip or time, uh, you know, time travel mechanic. Um, also let them repurpose all of the levels that they had already built as part of this larger world that was more interconnected. So yeah, what I was expecting having heard a little bit of the fact that okay this becomes a bit more of a metroidvania i was expecting a whole new world map a whole new set of levels because the game felt like this very clear linear a to b path through the various stages from the beginning to end but what was very cool about this was that it it kept all of that stuff and just expanded on it with additional routes additional pathways and everything Um, a lot of the levels still kind of maintained their mostly linear nature 
Um, so like, you know, there's, uh, but it added, for example, the fact that you can, from any of the save spots, or almost any, you can jump back to a sort of a home base at the Tower of Time, and then use portals from there to various spots within the world. Um, it's not the most convenient, because uh, you can't literally just warp from any save point to any other save point, but you can warp, for example, for, you, if you get to a point in a, in a, you know, one of these long linear levels, where you're like, mm, okay, I've done what I need to do here, you can go to any save point and get out. Um, and then from there, you can jump back in at one of about six or eight different points around the map. Um, and it's uh, it felt like a really smart and uh, you know good uh, fast travel system that let you expand this world by giving you these extra routes and extra you know different ways through these these levels while still leaving those linear levels intact, which was I thought really interesting. Um, yeah, it, you have to do uh, just some of these little challenging areas over and over and over there's no getting around it you know there's there's this one um it, it also it expands the map system uh in a very funny way uh well, that was so very funny can... like you don't you don't you're carrying it you're carrying the scroll and then it, uh you get through the entire like quote-unquote nes game and at some point it's like uh you know check your map and then the the character's like what map like you've been carrying this scroll the entire time and you haven't you haven't even read it open it up yeah. and it's like oh oh it's a world map <laughs> yeah it's very funny uh and it gives you like the really really helpful uh for these types of games grid based map where you can see every screen uh and like the entrances and exits to those screens mm -hmm. um and which i think was necessary and good for this game like sometimes that it kind of kills exploration a little bit but also this game is challenging enough that if you had to truly go around and touch every single square and look for every single entrance and exit over and over and over i think it would be considerably less fun so what this allows you to do is enter in from one of these warp gates look at the map see some of these areas that you were not able to that you haven't explored yet and then you still have to get there which can be challenging but you at least have sort of a destination in mind and that's why i think it still feels linear yeah. you enter in over here you know you're trying to get to the to the screen that's like six to the right and three up or something like that uh but you're gonna have to get there and and beat everything that's in between there and it might be different now because of these warp zones uh and i, I there was one that like I just kept dying over and over and over and it was something that i had done before already it was all in the old time but it was just challenging so uh I, I, it's it's really successful this game definitely does a lot of that stuff to make it just a little bit more manageable very modern you know there's we've talked about the save points already but you know really obvious stuff like right before every boss there's a save point and while that boss may have an opening cinematic when you see him the first time Every time after that, you enter the room, game on, fights on. You don't have to see the cinematic ever again, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of nice things like that. So you you mentioned about how this game still kind of feels linear during those part those parts where you're traversing the map because you do still sort of like come in at a point and know where you're going. Um, something sort of interesting about that, like this game does support this, the gameplay style of just sort of like looking at the map, trying to figure out, hmm, there's probably some stuff over there that I haven't checked out and going and doing a sort of an organic exploration. But given that the game starts very linear and has this high pace, I kind of, once I hit that sort of more Metroidvania-y portion of the game, um, I, I sort of felt like 
What do you mean now I have to start going and exploring and just like poking at every wall or anything? That would have been a nightmare, but the game does mm -hmm. do something that I think is smart, but also in a way kind of feels a little bit like they're kind of pulling back a little bit on the Metroidvania-ness of it, which is that um, you know you do have, a, first of all, there's a sort of a quest giver character back at the, at the headquarters who will tell you what it is that you need to be doing next. But he tells you in very, he's called the prophet, and he tells you in a very like, um, uh, you know, obscure kind of way. And so if you want, you can then, first of all, if you want, you don't have to go and talk to him at all. You can just wander the map if you want. Um, but if you do talk to him, you can try to interpret his instructions and go and explore the map and try to find what he's referring to. Or you can go talk to the shopkeeper, who is very plain spoken, and will charge you 300 uh, time shards to translate the prophecy into a literal dot on your map. Uh, and just tell you, okay, here's where you need to go next. So for me, given the way that I had been playing this game, I didn't really feel like I'm like spending a bunch of time just sort of like wandering the map trying to figure out what the prophet meant. <laughs> I wanted to know where I was supposed to go next. And so I always spent those 300 time chart shards in order to do that, but you don't have to. Um, so if you, um, I think it's nice that they kind of support both approaches. Um, that said, like having basically a literal dot on the map for here's your next objective is a very not metroidvania thing so right you, you're kind of if you know if you do that which i did you're kind of opting out of some of the more metroidvania-ness of it and opting back into the more linear nature that the earlier game kind of kind of trained you to do yeah there's other uh, ways in which they do that as well there's an entirely new tree in the upgrade path mm -hmm. that slowly but surely makes the map more descriptive uh, and the final uh, the final upgrade just straight up tells you where all of the power seals are yeah and I think that's great I think it's uh, it lets you play this game how you want because even though I love a good Metroidvania like I kind of found this game too challenging and at times kind of like too annoying to uh, because of how much I would die and how I never truly felt good or comfortable. Um, <laughs> I wanted those markers. I, I wonder how many people put, who play this game don't. You know, yeah. it, it is a little different for us where we're, we're trying to play like a game every week and I will often take these things that get, you know, make it a shorter game for me, you know, because that's what we do here, but yeah. <laughs> opting into uh, options like uh, map markups and opting out of like extra optional or skippable content is kind of like how we play games for this show. So yeah, but I I do wonder just uh, like out of percent of like organic players out there who really was getting to this part of the game and being like, oh, perfect, now I get to like go and do all of that hard stuff again with now without knowing where I'm supposed to be going. You know, I, I, I have to imagine that most people are, are doing those things. Maybe Probably not so. the prophet, maybe not the, uh, the guy telling you the mark on the dot, like, or the, you know, uh, uh, explaining, interpreting the prophecy for you. But I bet most people will do that yeah. uh, upgrade tree. And honestly, I think that's probably the right way to go. I don't think the, the developers yeah. really intending for you to, to you know, go through this game blind in that way. Um, there are elements of the Metroidvania structure here that I don't think are particularly well executed and really kind of call for knowing where the next dot on the map is. So an example would be that 
Um, at some point in the middle of the game, uh, I stumbled across a kind of a Lost Woods style uh, mystery maze. So like, if you remember from like uh, a lot of the Legend of Zelda games, you often get this thing where you wander into an area and, you know, there's like five exits and, you know, you go through an exit and go through another exit and another exit and another exit and eventually you're back where you started or you've even left the map or something. Like, um, these map areas where the navigation is wrong and doesn't make sense and um, usually there's some trick to that. Like, okay, go through the bottom left, bottom right, upper right, upper right, down, that sort of thing. Um, sure. So I was trying to, I spent a good while trying to figure that out and eventually looked it up because I was like getting frustrated. How do I, how do I get through this, this freaking maze? And turned out the answer was, first of all, I didn't have an item that I needed to get through it yet. And there was no real indication that I needed an item there. Um, it was like, but even more confusing than that, um, a lot of the, uh, the descriptions that I read about, so I looked this up and they were like, just go towards the place. So I'm going to spoil this puzzle. Hopefully that's okay. Um, and skip forward one or two minutes if you don't want to hear this. Um, the the uh, the answer was you are supposed to hear an audio cue when you're near the correct exit to that zone or or you know. But I wasn't. I was not hearing any audio cues. Well, okay. Actually, turns out you are supposed to get this item first, and then that item makes it do the audio cues. The audio cue though is the music. It's like, there will be music if you are near the right exit, and no music if you're not. But if you go in there before you get that item, there's always music near all of them. It's it's the weirdest thing. That's confusing. It's very confusing, and it's not a particularly well-designed Metroidvania thing in that there's nothing about it sort of telling you, okay, you need to go to this other place across the map in order to get an an item in this case like a seashell and then come back here you know i think good metroidvania design is sort of about like oh i wish i could reach that higher spot and um you know i need to be able to climb walls for that i'm gonna be on the lookout for a wall climbing thing and then i'll come back here when i know how to wall climb like that kind of stuff is not really present in this game it's much more yeah. sort of like lock and key it's also funny because so i had i got that seashell during the the beginning of the game, the linear part of it. Oh, interesting. I had happened to, I found it, but it, it I, I had no idea what it would do and it never told me what it was, what it was and what it would do for me. It, it was one of the clues to me that like this game's going to open up at some point because I got this item that literally it won't tell me what it is and has, won't tell me what it's for. But like, it was very confusing when I found that because it was at the end of a challenging set of things. And I was like, you know, oh, nice, I got this new thing. And then I just, you, I was expecting like the shopkeeper to tell me what it was about or like some sort of thing to tell me somewhere what this cool thing that I like really, you know, fought for. Uh, but no, just nothing. Mm -hmm. Another thing that like, while we're at it about things that this game does that maybe aren't the best, um, maybe this is just me, but I think Nate sounds like you had a similar experience. There are there are certain spots in this game that are just too damn hard. Um, I, I feel like there's it, it, it's hard for me to really like point out exactly like what the like solution to this problem is because different people play this game these games at you know at different skill levels and the places where I get stuck might be different from the places where you get stuck. But there's really nothing. There, there, there. It's definitely possible to reach points in this game where, like, you just can't progress unless you complete a very specific, very difficult manual thing. 
So for me, for example, there is a chase scene near the end of the game. Um, this is just one example of this, where like you've you've navigated your way into this very you know uh, cave-like place, and then there is a large enemy that chases you back out, and you have to kind of reverse and get out very very quickly. And um, I had a real, real hard time doing that. And it was very demoralizing because every time I died, which happened many, many times in this area, I was respawning at the spot, at the start of this chase, literally like the beginning of the chase sequence. Um, and it's definitely possible to get into situations like that in this game. Most of the places where you might die, things like, or might have like sort of like serious problems, things like bosses. Yeah, there's the possibility like, okay, I'm gonna maybe back off of this boss for a little while, collect some time shards, maybe get an upgrade or two, or maybe just come back later or something like that. Um, but there's definitely gonna be parts in this game where like there are these difficulty spikes that are just gonna just gonna be there until you until you figure out how to how to get past them. And it's not really a mental thing, at least for me it wasn't. It was like I know what I need to do, it's just an execution problem, and I'm old and my hands don't work. Um, <laughs> it it I'm, I'm super happy to have played this game and, and I enjoyed the challenge very much, but I would, I think for me at least, I think they could have tuned it downward by about 10% and I think I still would have enjoyed the challenge and maybe been a happier overall player, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I do agree. Um, for me, it was the bosses. I, and really only of the last few and they just felt like they went too long yeah, for a game a that a little bit too it, much HP. A few of them, yeah. Like for a game that really everything you were like moving through and moving fast, uh, the bosses—they're all about pattern, repetition, and execution. So the boss is really going to behave the same way every single time you fight them. You just have to get really, really good at uh, managing that and knowing what each sort of tell is, what it's going to do, and how you avoid damage. It's a lot of just uh, of damage avoidance and then go really, really hard at the boss in the moments that you have and the damage avoidance. Mm -hmm. And uh, once you, almost all the bosses have the same sort of thing. Once you deal an, a certain amount of damage, they switch into a new phase. And then you have to kind of get good at learning what that new phase is and avoiding it, dealing as much damage. And then there's like a final phase. And so you kind of have to learn each phase and exactly what's going to happen and master avoiding the damage. And I like that thing. I like that approach. That's a fun uh, style. I just felt like they all went just a little too far, where it required too much perfect execution that it stopped being fun and started becoming tedious. Uh, and that's how I felt about a fair amount of this game. I said that at the beginning, that I think this game would have benefited by it being uh, shorter, that you know we're both going over 10 hours on this game, and I think it really would have been like, perfect if it was like six or seven you know maybe cut the amount of zones before the opening up of the game mm -hmm. to a shorter amount uh, uh, you know i, I, you know, I, I have a bit of a different been... take there like i i agree with you in in principle but i think that the part of this game that i wouldn't cut a minute of is the before the the shift like i loved the structure of the like left to right nes style portion of the game mm -hmm. and it felt about the length of an NES game. Like it was, it really felt true to that structure. It was like they built an entire incredibly good NES game and then tacked a second game onto the end. 
Um, and I felt like that second game was where if I were if I were going through it trying to kind of cut the fat a little bit, I probably would have would have done it there because um, I I really appreciated the the like really sort of true to its origins structure of that first part. Um, but anyway, I, I agree with you in principle about that. Yeah, I, I was mostly the bosses again for me. So maybe if even those were just a little bit shorter, I would have felt better about the first part of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but I it, it there were times where I was like, okay, this is no longer fun. This is tedious. I just need to execute perfectly. And when I would win, it wasn't that release of like, oh yeah, like, I did it. I, you know, I mastered it. It was like a okay, finally, I can <laughs> move on. Yeah, you know, and and that's not really a fun feeling. Um, anyway, one other thing that I think that we definitely need to talk about, if only for a couple minutes, uh, is the writing and the humor style of this game because we've been speaking. Yeah. <laughs> this, we we talked about horrible in the jokes, but if we hadn't uh, talked about that you would maybe be going into this game thinking it's a very serious, like, epic Ninja Warrior game. And it is... Could not be further from that. There no, is... it, it, it's the thing. is It actually is that. It just has this humor, like, in addition. I feel like it's, it still takes I, itself very seriously. It, it's just that the, yeah. the dialogue is funny, but the, the story is trying to be serious or something. Yes and no. Every single ba- bad guy, is, you know becomes a good guy like everything is like a fluffy funny friendly monster who just was like confused you know like everything is is like played for laughs except for the fact that the the world is coming to an end but like every single character is goofy you know yeah you know what i think is really strange about this is that like it has um it has a lot of lore and story going on and i mean we i probably should mention that the developers um have just finished a kickstarter campaign for their next game is going to be a jrpg set as a prequel in this same world and it looks amazing um, but the writing in this didn't necessarily give me confidence that these folks would do a JRPG that you know, where the writing is so much more central that I will really enjoy. Well, so we'll wait and see because I think it looks cool. Like it could be really great. Yeah. But but like the this game has the feeling of, and I think even some comments from the developer kind of indicate that maybe this is exactly the case of like. You know, you know when you were a kid and you're like 15 and you come up with you got like a, a binder or something and you come up with the backstory of a world and maybe this is something that you eventually use as the setting of your D&D campaign with your friends or something like that. Like, you know, it, it has the feeling of like somebody, probably a kid, spending an enormous amount of time uh, thinking about like a whole world with massive backstory going back eons and uh, you know lots of big ideas um the, one of the developers in, in an interview that i saw basically said that like he'd been making quote unquote the messenger since he was 12 and that this was based on these big ideas that he had from from you know all this world building that he'd been doing he'd said he tried to make games set in this world before this before he really knew how to make games and so on and i'm like okay first of all that's cool like that's great it's yeah. great to to hear that him. story good for him um but there's a bit of a mismatch here for me between this world that is a little bit overcomplicated, like really a lot of there's a lot going on in the in the plot and story and particularly backstory of the world of the messenger and the sort of humorous light tone of the dialogue, which is mostly this sort of 
it's a it's a style of comedy that doesn't really work well for me. Like I don't know how to describe it. How would you describe the the sort of tone and humor here? I I don't know what to call it. like like high silliness. You know, like like one of the one of the last bosses that you fight are these two bodybuilding buff like yeah yeah you know they're like pumping weights and and iron and their moves are like cool guy combo moves you know where they're like lifting each other up and doing flying kicks and like flexing okay i, and I actually have to say that was of the humor of the game those guys were probably my favorite bit <laughs> it, it's funny but like that like that's you know that like that's where it's at <laughs> you know that's what it's, the, it's the bosses full of very like meta humor too like it, it uh, there's a lot of uh, you know lines in the dialogue particularly from people like Corbel and the shopkeeper that are very like um, uh, winking and nodding that you're in a video game you know Corbel yeah. in particular is constantly saying things like uh, you know that one was when you die he'll say things like that one was probably input lag right or you know uh, yeah. Things like that. So, like, there's also that, that sort of meta humor of, like, video gamey dialogue, video gamey humor. Um, yeah. But there, there, there does have one of my favorite sight gags in a game, really. But in this game is, I think, the second boss. It might be even the first boss that you fight. Uh, when you enter, it's, like, looks like a really big, uh, like, floating wizard holding a giant staff. And it's got its back to you in a big, flowing purple robe. And it slowly lowers after saying, you know, some sort of epic thing about how, you know, you're going to be defeated. And it stops where the robe looks like, you know, where the where its feet would be. And it's standing there and you think, oh, man, I'm going to be fighting this giant wizard. And there's this, like, just moment of pause when it's there. And then it lowers even more. And the robe drapes along the floor. And you see that the, the person in the robe is actually, like, smaller than you are. Uh, and it was just that their robe was really big and flowing. And when you look at them from behind, they look like they're huge. Uh, and it was just like the timing of it was very funny. So there are some good jokes. And, yeah, you know, and it, like, it's funny. Like, I think actually thinking back on it, the that humor um, in the in the NES game portion, basically, right? Like the linear, um, you know, before the sort of turn, doing those sorts of jokes with the bosses didn't really feel like it t- took me out of it. A lot of NES games had slightly goofy bosses. That was fine yeah. for me. And um, it, for, for me, where it really started feeling weird was like, once the game started trying to pile its lore on and get very serious about its story, which really happened after the sort of mid-game turn, um, then the the humor and the story stopped fitting together for me. Um, well, yeah, there's like the, 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 the messenger, the main character, the game starts out and it's like cliche, it's like, doesn't care about his training, doesn't care about, uh, you know, being part of this ancient tribe that, it, or ancient, you know, sect that is preparing for the end of the end of the world. And, and like, by all accounts would be a really bad ninja. And then everybody dies and you're the only one left. So you're, you become the one. And then for the rest of the game, you're really wacky and really weird and, and not really like wanting to be a part of it. But you're also really, really good and execute everything. You know, you you do the job and it's like they never really match those two. It's never like, oh, I'm becoming more like the hero that the world wanted. There's no like growth to the character. You're just always this person who's like never seems like they would want to be doing it in the first place. And, and part of me is like, 
oh, well, are they trying to justify why you die all the time? Mm, right? Yeah. Like, maybe maybe that's the, the hook. But they never say anything about it. It's, it's just like everybody is silly. The, the funny thing about it is that, like, it's being an NES game style game, it doesn't have a lot of dialogue. Um, but the one place where you do get a lot of spoken dialogue is the shopkeeper, who turns out to be a pretty important character. And the shopkeeper is also probably one of the goofiest parts of the game. Yeah. And so it, it gives you this sort of overwhelming feeling that, like, this is this is a game designed to be goofy. Um, but then, of course, you know, even, like, very towards... Like the, the, within the last hour of the game, there's this, like, final lore dump that is just, like... Oh, well, you thought you knew what was going on. Well, here, let me give you a new backstory that goes back many thousands of years further than the, the already very ancient backstory that you already know and goes further back into antiquity. And let me introduce new characters to you that are going to be important in the last 10 minutes of the game. And let me tell you things about like the the nature of the world and time that, that you know, it's, it's just so very, um, like if you're, Maybe this is just, like, maybe other folks will feel differently about this, but for me, it mostly just comes down to that, like, I find there's a certain incompatibility between sort of light, humorous dialogue and very detailed lore. Like, I'm totally willing to go along with a game that is cartoony, right? But, like, then keep keep the stakes cartoony um, and keep the uh, keep the sort of world cartoony but it felt like we had a bunch of cartoon characters in an incredibly detailed D&D setting or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, well, that that's my point. Is like, I think that's where the miss is. You have to have serious characters and you have to have like silly characters. Yeah, and but serious everybody... characters. There are a couple characters that you could maybe consider serious characters, but they say like 10 words, like a serious character yeah. might, right? But like... But, like, they're playing against characters who, like, the shopkeeper has reams of dialogue. Particularly, there are certain yeah. things you can do, like, if you interact with his cabinet in his uh, in his uh, store. Um, there are these rants he'll go on with unskippable dialogue. It's a bit of a joke, right? You know, it's an, intended to be one of these things, like, it's a don't touch that cabinet. And if you keep doing it, you, get, you end up in these, like, unskippable, like, cabinet rants that are kind of funny. Um, but, like... The vast majority of the actual dialogue in this game is the shopkeeper, the one very one of the very goofiest parts of the game. So it, yeah. it feels on balance like all the characters are super, super goofy, and the setting they're in and the story they're playing out is super not goofy, or at least not intended to be, and it takes away from one of them, uh, sometimes both. Yeah. Well, it'd be different, too. It's like, it's hard to always be funny. Don't get me wrong. Like, I, I think maybe... Um, West of Loathing is maybe the only game that has had like a significant amount of dialogue in which I've found almost all of it to be funny, yeah. right? Um, but uh, I think this game is like 30% like really funny and interesting and then like 70% just like always trying jokes, you know? Yeah. So it's a lot of just like, it's not even groaning bad jokes. It's just like, man, they're just, they're most like, you're right. It's like 70% misses. Uh, yeah. And, but, but I bet, but I bet everybody's 30% is a little different too, yeah. you know? So it's hard to say that it's not funny. Like it's just, it's a weird balance of things. I think that's ultimately what it is. Yeah. Like, they're, they're, the the humor is is at times really good, and the the stories that the shopkeeper tells at times are funny and introspective and interesting. Mm -hmm. And then at times you're like, okay, just 
to stop. Like, let me get let, to the next thing. I, I don't know if I, to slash I don't know points. if I, yeah, I don't know if I want to talk to the shopkeeper anymore because I just really want to play the mechanics. But every once in a while, it's, it's very funny and very interesting. So it's worth it for me to talk to him. Or sometimes I have to because he's giving out a skill or something. And if I don't talk to him, I don't get it. Yeah. And, and you know, rest, speaking right? of that, like, I feel like I, I spent a lot of time talking to the characters during the first half of the game. Um, and at some point, I kind of realized, you know, I'm not really loving uh, the humor of this game. And so I kind of stopped talking to the shopkeeper, and the game pretty much allows you to do that. Like, there's certainly going to be times yeah. where you have to talk to some of the various characters, but like, I found myself mostly focusing on the action and uh, and mostly ignoring the, you know, the dialogue. And the game doesn't really get in your way with that stuff. The places where you do have to talk to characters, mostly those things, uh, those like required conversations are pretty short, and you can button mash your way through them. Uh, if you miss something important, you can always go back to those characters and talk to them again. So something like the, the prophet, for example, you know, if you get the tip from him and then you wander away and you forget what he said, you can go back and he'll tell you immediately. You don't have to go through a bunch of dialogue trees or anything like that. So it uh, it does support like if you aren't that into the dialogue, you don't have to engage with it really. Um, and if you are yeah. into it, there's a lot of it that you can potentially there's opt into. There's plenty of it there for you. <laughs> yeah. So I think. I think this has been a good balanced discussion because overall, you know, we spent the first like 45 minutes of this talking about how much we really liked it. And then we have spent the last like 20 minutes kind of talking about things that have, have not really been, uh, we're not really as good as, you know, we were hoping or, or really just like, yeah, didn't feel, didn't feel great. I think is really what it is. Yeah. I mean, and, it's, uh, it's a bit of a, I, yeah, it's a bit of a down from the incredible highs of the like controls and action. Um, I, I guess yeah. in order to leave it with a with a sandwich, I do want to talk about one thing that I really, really loved about the game we haven't mentioned yet, which is the soundtrack. This game has mm -hmm. a kick-ass soundtrack. And in fact, it kind yeah. of has two kick-ass soundtracks because yeah. the, the entire soundtrack was made once in the 8-bit style and then a second time in a Genesis 16-bit style. And both of them slap. They are good soundtracks, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, yeah. What do you, well, what do you think I, about I mean, it? I think it... it yeah, it's great, and I think it like it ties a lot of it together. And you know, I think the stuff that we're we're saying about this game that are great, it all it, it looks great, it sounds great, and it feels great. It's just a little too long in some parts, and it's not as funny as it wants as it to thinks be. it is. <laughs> uh, you know, and but overall, like I think this is a really cool game, and I'm really glad that we played it. And I also appreciate like you know we talk about. Uh, games like when we appreciate a game like going for it you know like while while the humor doesn't really match and it, it might be a little too long I, I i will say that i appreciate them trying this like mm -hmm. really really expansive uh blend of things i think you know there's a world where this game is just the second half and they're like look at our cool uh our cool like uh, time period swapping game where you're going between 8 and 16 bit and like that could have been the whole game right and that's probably what all the write-ups would have been about and that's what the whole thing would have been a game where you're going between two different like time periods of uh, platforming slashers uh, or they could have just done the first half and been like hey we made a really good retro throwback game just you know play it it's fun it's 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 a good hack and slash and, and you're good instead they put it all together and they made this complete thing that uh is pretty lofty uh for for uh for a game i think it it accomplishes more than it than it 
uh, fails at, and I mm -hmm. think it's worth playing. Absolutely. I, I, I'm really, really glad we played it. It's been on my list of things that I wanted to play for a very long time, um, and uh, what eventually pushed me over the edge was I, I, I had this game on PC because uh, there was a... Um, well, it, it had been on my, my list for a long time, and then it came. It became one of the free games on the Epic Game Store they, when they were giving out games for free. And I started it there and really quite enjoyed it. But um, it's the kind of game that I really wanted to be play wanted to be playing on my Switch. So when it went on sale on the Switch, I picked it up there. And then I just haven't having a really really fun time with it. So glad we got a chance to to you know talk about it for the show, even if it is a little bit longer than the sorts of things we typically cover. It's still within our you know, within our basic zone. And so I would definitely recommend yep. folks check this one out if you like a, a like a, a difficult, challenging, but rewarding platformer. And I'm really looking forward to finding out what these people do in the JRPG space because I don't know. I really don't know what that game is going to be like, but I think it'll be very interesting. It's going to be like 700 hours. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see. Uh, I should add one last thing. Uh, they, uh, they released a free DLC for this that I haven't touched yet, but it's called the Picnic Panic DLC. And it basically just adds an extra sort of mini campaign that you can play through. Um, and it looks super cute and fun. It's beach themed and tiki themed, and I can't wait to go back to oh god that's, and give that, that a is, little bit a shot. It looks super cute. That and is fun. that is targeted right at Reagan. Oh yeah, tiki themed. Yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, uh, recommend this game. So uh, thank you for listening to the short game, uh, and uh, you can find our show on the internet at www.theshortgame.net. You can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the short game. If you'd like to support the show, like our wonderful supporters, such as uh, Robert Hawks, Adam Saleh, and Eric Faro. Thank you so much to all of you and to all the rest of our patrons for supporting us. And if you uh, would like to join those fine people on our Discord, uh, supporters on Patreon at any level get immediate access to our Discord, which is where we talk about the show, we plan things out, we talk about the games that we're playing, we talk about our various uh, stock prices on uh, Animal Crossing New Leaf. That's still a thing that's happening there right now. Uh, and uh, we'd just love to have folks join us there. So if you've been a listener, and you haven't supported us, uh, now would be a great time. Just uh, hop on to patreon.com slash the short game and join the conversation. Uh, you can also, of course, find us on Twitter at underscore short game. Uh, and you can find our, our contact form on our website, www.theshortgame.net. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm Reagan at Reagan K on Twitter. R-A-Y-G-A-N-K. And Nate, uh, where can people find you? On Twitter at Nate S-T-L. And thank you for listening to The Short Game.